Today we're continuing our series that we've entitled United We Love. In fact, it's not only the title of this series, but it's going to be the theme for the rest of this year. In this series, we're going to be focusing on uh, unity, the unity that we have in Christ and this unity that brings us together and causes us to go into the world with this same message of being one in Christ. You know, many of you know that I've just gotten back from the Holy Land with a group of uh, members of our church and uh, members of Highland Park Church. We all went together. We had such a great trip. And I was thinking of you when I got this ring in the Holy Land. And it says in Hebrew, they usually put your name on it, but I didn't think Stanley on a ring in Hebrew really was all that big a deal. But I told them that I wanted one in Christ in Hebrew on this ring. Uh, not only to remind me of what this series is about and what our theme for this year is about, but, but hopefully what uh, our life is about as Christians, that we're called to a special sense of unity. Not a unity born out of our own desire, but a unity born out of the very heart of God, a unity that's born in Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus throughout um, Galilee and Judea was to make a point that all are welcome to the love of God. There are no exclusions. And this theme is picked up by the earliest of followers. It's really a theme, if you look at it, that runs all the way through the Gospels in Jesus and into the Acts of the Apostles. You see all of these different kinds of people coming to faith. Sometimes people who were not um, seen as insiders, but rather outsiders, and yet they were welcome at the Lord's table that was getting longer and wider as the message of the good news of Jesus Christ spread throughout the land. Today we're going to be focusing our attention on John's Gospel, the fourth chapter, and featuring the woman of Sychar, Samaria, and this woman's encounter with Jesus at a well called Jacob's Well. Now, being fresh back from the Holy Land, I've got uh, maps that I'm going to be sharing with you every uh, week. We'll see about 30 maps uh, every sermon. <laughs> Not really. I only have one today. But I would like to show you this map and to talk a little bit about, um, uh, about it in relationship to this story uh, that we're about to read from the fourth chapter of John. On this trip, we saw the Samaritan Mountains, but we didn't go through them. We went the route that most would go. Of course, it's a route now that has quite a nice highway that goes from the Galilee area in the north of, of um, Israel down uh, through Judea, even into Egypt. But oftentimes, Jesus would go a different route. He would go that route from Nazareth that would go down to Jerusalem, and it would go through the area of Samaria and Sychar, and by Jacob's well. Most who were traveling that journey from either Jerusalem to Galilee or Galilee to Jerusalem would bypass past the Samaritan mountains, mainly because the Samaritans lived there. And there was a lot of animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. The, the Samaritans were considered to be unclean, so why would you pass through an area that was, in essence, unclean or full of unclean people. In this text that we're going to read from John 4, 
Jesus is in this region of Samaria. He's passing through this city of Sychar, but he's actually outside the city uh, by Jacob's well. And there's a woman who's coming there to draw water because everyone in that area drew water at that well that was so ancient and so important to the Jewish faith. Unlike most Jews of his day, Jesus apparently had a soft spot in his heart for the Samaritans. At least he used it as a rabbi to teach others uh, the good news about how we're called to love other people, even people who are different. But he realized that oftentimes he was talking to people who had a hardness in their heart for Samaritans and who couldn't possibly see how God's love could reach to them or God's ways reach to them because they were outside of that understanding of righteousness. Now, why was that? Those who lived in Samaria were, in essence, victims of the exile in 585 B.C. when the Jewish people were conquered uh, by the Babylonians, and many of them were taken into exile into Babylonia. And there they spent decades, and in that time they intermarried with the, uh, the Babylonian people, and they, they developed different customs. They couldn't go to the temple area for worship. They couldn't go to Jerusalem for worship. So they, they developed different practices of how they encountered God, different understandings. So when they returned, which was actually hundreds of years before the life of Jesus, there was still this animosity that existed because they were so different. They saw the worship of God to be on the, highly mount, high, the, the, the holy mountain, not in the temple. They saw um, other differences that had to do with the law and the prophets. The whole world seemed to know... Um, the difference in that part of the world between the Jews and the Samaritans, and they knew the hostilities that also existed. Now, Jesus often used Samaritans as a point he's trying to get across in his story by their very being. We, we know the story of the Good Samaritan that takes place just outside of Jericho. We went on that road, and you could see how robbers could hide out in the hills and ambush people coming along the road. And of course, any secular person would know the term Good Samaritan. They might not know the intricacies of the story, but they would know that the Good Samaritan was the one who responded to the need of another, right? Responded to take care of another. It did a good deed, in essence. And so it's no secret to anyone that Jesus would use a Samaritan to be the hero of the story and, and the religious people to be the ones who would pass by on the other side and not respond to the need of another. And here today we have this story about another Samaritan woman who, like the good Samaritan, is not named. We don't know her name. But we might call her the not-so-good Samaritan because she had some baggage that she was dealing with. And it's at that point that she meets Jesus at the well, Jacob's well, outside of Sychar in Samaria, and they have a conversation that changes her life and has changed many a life in these 2,000 years that we've been reading her story, for it often coincides with our own stories. I'd like for us to turn at this time to the fourth chapter of John's Gospel. We're going to begin reading with the seventh verse. And I'd like to ask us to stand for the reading of God's Word. 
A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews did not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, the one who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then the disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. But no one said, what do you want, or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her jar, water jar and went back to the city. She said, the, uh, she said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. He cannot be the, the Messiah, can he? This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Today the sermon is going to be a lesson that's going to really center around the four questions that the woman at the well asked Jesus and then a fifth question. But the first question I'd like for us to focus on is the woman responded with this question, how come you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? 
Jews in that day wouldn't be caught dead talking to Samaritans. She looked at how the world judged her as unworthy. She knew that the world judged her, even among her own people, as second class. She knew what it meant to be dehumanized. She knew not only to be ridiculed because she was a Samaritan by the Jews, but she was also ridiculed among her own people, a woman, a woman who, in essence, was separated from God by her own sin. Jesus said to her, If you knew the generosity of God and who I am, you would be asking me of a dr- uh, for a drink. I would give you fresh, living water. Jesus did something really important for her. He didn't respond to her out of prejudices or bigotry or racism or sexism. He didn't judge her as unworthy. He only cared that she would drink of the living water that he had to offer the living water that he was speaking to her about. Jesus wanted her to know that every person was precious to God. And his greatest frustration was not with the Samaritans, but was with the religious people of his day who often categorized people as righteous or unrighteous and had nothing to do with those who were unrighteous, considered to be unclean. And therefore you had this great divide between the Samaritans considered by the Jews to be unclean and the Jews who were despised by the Samaritans because of their judgmental attitudes. It causes us in reading this lesson to ask a probing question. How do we see people today? Do we see people first as precious children of God, God's creation? Do we see them as sisters and brothers? Do we see them as ones for whom Christ died? The Samaritan woman was full of wonder as she had, was acknowledging the person of sacred worth, as she was acknowledged as a person of sacred worth by Jesus. And this woman was very touched by the way that Jesus would come to her in this hour of her own need. You know, I want us in these coming days to think in terms of united we love and who we are as lovers lane. What has our history been? Have we been the sort of church that has basically welcomed those like the woman at the well? Those considered to be lesser thans? I dare say that's been our history. The question is, will that be our future? You know, we know our story, and I hope we, um, we see that story as a centering story on who we are as a people. You know, Lover's Lane in our early days did something that no churches in the mid-40s were really doing, and that is we made a welcome place for those dealing with addiction, particularly addiction to alcohol. Tom Shipp, our pastor, was known as one who opened not only the doors of the church, but the doors of his own home to those who were struggling with alcohol. One of the first church squabbles and members left the church because uh, they didn't want to be known as the first alcoholic church of Dallas. And Tom Shipp said, you know, these people need us. If we're not here for people who need us, then why are we here? 
Well, that was a pretty bold statement from a 27-year-old with a brand new church he was trying to start. But that church was a different kind of church, offering a different kind of spirituality. And then in 1961, in the midst of the civil rights struggles, Lover's Lane pastor welcomed an African-American woman named Bernice Jones to become a member of the church. She'd reached out to him. She wanted to be a member of the church. He'd met her in the hospital and prayed with her there. You know the story? Tom Shipp said, I will not serve a church that's not open to all people. And what a lesson that was. In 1961, think about it. President Kennedy was assassinated a couple of years later. This was before that. This was was before the ratification of the civil rights um, legislation. This was a statement that was being made that this is a different kind of spirituality that we embrace. And I remember years ago, Lover's Lane was reaching out to uh, deaf youth to start a deaf academy, a school for the deaf. Now that was new and different. I know last Sunday you celebrated 20 years of deaf ministry here at Lover's Lane. Tom Hudspeth's been a big part of that, but it existed even before Tom was here. I remember one of the early um, challenges that we had when we started talking about having a, a school for uh, deaf youth. And, and there were some parents who had their kids in our Wesley Prep School at the time who were concerned. A couple of these parents came to me. They were concerned that these deaf youth, they said those people, would be sharing the same restroom facilities with children of the school. Even though there were tremendous supervision and and oversight, the fear continued to exist. I remember one of the the statements was that, you know, what if the little children heard these older youth cursing in the restroom? And, you know, I... I said, they're they're deaf youth. They're not going to be cursing out loud, maybe by sign language. (laughs) But there was this sense of fear that that what's going to happen if the deaf school grows, you know, and more deaf people come, and, uh, you know, and and they're different. It, It causes us to be out of our comfort zone. I want to remind us that what, what's said in 1 John is that perfect love, the love of Christ, casts out all fear. You know, from the very beginning of this church, you know, what Tom Ship, his pastor, was trying to say, don't be afraid. It's okay if we open our doors to, um, uh, to those who are dealing with alcoholism. It's okay if we open our doors to African Americans. It's okay if we open our doors to deaf youth. It's okay. We don't have to be afraid. Perfect love casts out all fear. Jesus was talking to a Samaritan, a woman, one who had been an adulterer. And perhaps it was an unspoken fear when the disciples walked up and they saw Jesus talking to this Samaritan woman and they they may have said, well, you know, the next thing you know, we'll have Samaritans in the church. 
They'll be everywhere. And we may see a different way of worshiping, a different style, a different way of viewing things because they're Samaritans. And Jesus' action said, well, I certainly hope so. I certainly hope that, 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 that God's church is open to Samaritans. For they worship me, and I pray that they worship me in spirit and in truth. Let's look at the second question. The woman said, sir, you don't even have a bucket to draw with, and this well is deep, so how are you going to get the living water that you speak about? She immediately put her attention on the depth of the well and the inadequacies of Jesus to be able to draw since he didn't have any equipment. And Jesus said, Everyone who drinks this water will get thirsty again. And again, anyone who drinks the water that I give will never thirst. Not ever. The water I give will be an artesian spring within, gushing fountains of endless life. Jesus put his attention on the inadequacies of the water that she was coming to fetch. He, he was putting his, his focus on the inadequacies of her physical answers in trying to turn her attention to spiritual solutions. He was offering a life-changing drink of a spiritual water. One that would transform her. The spiritual living water that he had to offer would gush up from the depths of her soul into eternal life. But she still doesn't understand. For when she says, give me this water, she was still thinking about a, a kind of water that would cause her never to thirst and a kind of water that would keep her from the physical strain of having to fetch that water every day. She was still stuck in the physical. And furthermore, she'd come in the middle of the day, and Jesus had observed that. He'd passed through that area before. He probably knew her background and her reputation. This woman who comes in the middle of the day, she's one who comes then because it's hot in the middle of the day, and she wouldn't have to see anybody else. Because every time she saw others, she was shamed and felt guilt. So Jesus says to her, go get your husband and come back. And she said, I don't have a husband. He said, you're right, you don't. In saying you have no husband, you've had five husbands. And the one you're with now is not your husband. Jesus points to her spiritual needs. And I don't think he's doing that in a way to make her feel more shame and guilt. Not at all. I think he's pointing to her own needs that she has. That everybody knows about. Let's go ahead and get them on the table. He's talking to her about a new way of understanding a God who forgives. And who can rid her of the shame and guilt that has her in the heat of the day fetching water. Water. 
You, you know, she's, she's basing her shame and guilt on, on Scripture that, that, that said, and if you are married and divorced and remarried, then you're basically in an adulterous situation. Of course, the church has moved away from that more literal understanding some years ago, but Jesus talks to her about her sin, which I, I dare say is not the sin of her actions of, of marriage and adultery, but it's the sin of her separation from God due to her shame and guilt. You know, oftentimes we find ourselves in the midst of actions that we commit that produce shame and guilt, and it's the shame and guilt that separates us from God. The actions are just the means to that end. You know, it causes me to wonder, wonder how many people out there are dealing with shame and guilt so much that they dare not darken the door of a church because it would only enhance it. How many people have given up on God and also the church because of that shame and guilt that has them understanding themselves as not people of God, but people of sin? Third question. The woman said, our ancestors worshiped God on this mountain, but you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place to worship right? Jesus said, there's a time coming when true worshipers will worship God in spirit and truth. For God is spirit, not mountain or building, and we are spirit, not just as body or what possessions we accumulate or what social standing we acquire. True worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. You know, it, it's funny um, what worshipers, not true worshipers, but what worshipers often get hung up on in the midst of our worship in church. We tend to pick and choose churches based on what church is doing for me what church makes me feel good? Instead of wanting a church that can encourage and challenge us to serve. One that equips us in serving. You know, oftentimes we, we, we look for the, the choir to sing just right. And boy, the choir did good today. You got, you got kind of an applause today. I mean, it wasn't hearty, but it was pretty good. <laughs> By the way, it's a beautiful anthem. But, but don't think it was less beautiful because you didn't get that hearty applause. The bell choir, I'm sure you'll get similar treatment. The jury's still out on how this sermon's coming across, I believe. <laughs> but worshipers who worship in spirit and truth aren't worshiping to evaluate the goodness of what's being presented, but see ourselves as participants in worship and spirit and truth. And are trying to come together in spirit and truth through our songs and through our prayers and, and, and through our messages. 
So, so that we leave here today with a mission to go into the world with the good news of Jesus Christ that united we love in him. You know, we at Lover's Lane push for unity in the essentials and tolerance in non-essentials. And we don't want to get hung up on non-essentials. We even recognize that it's okay for us all not to, uh, to, to believe exactly alike, for us all to have different views and perspectives. That's okay on the non-essentials. It's the essentials that center us in unity. Fourth question. The woman sets up her last question to Jesus this way. She says, in essence, while I've got you here, I want to ask you a biggie. I know the Christ is coming, and he will proclaim all things to us. And then with every fiber in her being, she says, are you the Christ? And Jesus said, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. And then the disciples come up, and the woman leaves. She leaves her water jars. She left so quickly because she wants to go to the city to witness to what she has experienced. Now, I hope we get this. Here's a woman who's coming to the well to draw water in the middle of the day so she doesn't have to see anybody, and now she's leaving her water jars, and with her spiritual blessing, she's going into the city to tell everybody she can meet about this one and the encounter she's had with this one, but she has a question for them. And the fifth question is the one she asks, not of Jesus, but of everyone she meets. Can this man I've told you about, can he be the Christ? I believe she knew that answer for herself. I believe in that brief encounter she'd had with Jesus, she had chosen not only to lay down her water jars, but she'd laid down her shame and guilt. She'd come to understand herself through the, the, the very encounter with Jesus, the one who spoke to her, though she was a woman, though she was from Samaria. She came to understand that this one speaking for God is saying, I'm worth something. I'm precious in God's sight. It changed the way that she saw herself. So she could go and she could go back into town without the shame and guilt and without the low self-esteem. She could go back and she could ask this pointed question. I've met this man. He's different. Could he be the Christ? To Jesus, it didn't matter that she was a Samaritan woman. It didn't matter what she had done or even what she was doing, the, the, the acts of her um, living in adultery in the, Jew, in the eyes of the Jewish law. This didn't matter. How she believed God to be worshipped in the temple or on the holy mountain and 
what she believed about the Messiah's coming, that, that didn't matter. All that mattered was her spiritual thirst. And Jesus offering this water that would make a difference and transform her life. That's all that mattered. And if she would drink of that water that he came to offer, then all of the other would fall into place. A few years ago, a woman by the name of Liz Curtis Higgs wrote a book called Bad Girls of the Bible. Did any of you read it? Well, I'm going to make a little confession today. When Bad Girls of the Bible came out about 20 years ago, my wife Tammy, we were new to this church, my wife Tammy, and um, Bruce Hearn's wife, Mary Margaret Owen, they decided to start a United Methodist Women's Circle, and the first thing they were going to study was Bad Girls of the Bible. I thought, well, that was a short tenure at Lover's Lane. You know, after they finish that book, I'll be gone. Bad girls of the Bible, what is this? And I had to go rush out and buy one just to see what it was about. And sure enough, they packed the house in that little UMW circle because they were studying bad girls of the Bible. You know, I, I dare say if there was a book called Bad Men of the Bible, it'd be that thick. But anyway, <laughs> bad girls of the Bible was about that thick. And the chapter that dealt with the woman at the well was called Dying for a Drink. And in it she shared four lessons. I think these four lessons are a good way for us to end this message today. The first lesson was never be afraid to ask questions. You know, sometimes we're afraid to wade into theological waters with someone who might be more knowledgeable. We're afraid we might ask the wrong questions or might ask a foolish question. That wasn't the woman at the well when this Jesus was talking to her. She was ready to ask questions. She took a risk. He opened the door and she stepped through it. James 1.5 says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Second lesson, bad girls of the Bible. Never be afraid to tell God the truth. Not lying isn't the same thing as telling the truth. The Lord knows us intimately. That was displayed in this passage. Jesus knew this woman and all about this woman. She didn't confess her sexual sins. He had to gently point them out to her. He knew it. We need to be reminded this morning that confession is telling God the truth about us. That's all it is. Confession is just telling the truth to God. And sometimes I think we, we, we believe that we can't tell God the truth because we don't know if God can handle it. Or we think, well, you know, I don't want God to know that about me. 
Now, he already knows about you. He's in an intimate relationship with you. You just may not know it yet. The psalmist says, When I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and, will forget, and, will, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. That's what happened to her. God forgave the guilt of her sin. Third lesson. Bad girls of the Bible. Thirst is a gift from God and the work of the Holy Spirit. Did you hear it? Thirst is a gift from God and the work of the Holy Spirit. Are you thirsty? The woman's thirst put her in the path of the Messiah. And I'm not talking about her thirst for water that she'd gone to fetch. She had a thirst for forgiveness. She had a thirst to have the shame and guilt taken out of her life. She had a thirst, and that thirst led her to an encounter with Jesus. The thirst that you have in your life right now that's spiritual, it's a gift from God. But you have to let God quench the thirst. Psalm 42:2. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? And finally, living water is meant to be shared. She couldn't keep her encounter with Jesus to herself. Oh, how many days she'd gone to fetch water in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, so she wouldn't see anyone, and go back home not seeing anyone, back to her home, back to her sheltered life. But she couldn't keep it a secret. This encounter with Jesus, she had to tell someone. The most important first step in an encounter with Jesus is that we have to make it public. We have to tell someone. Today, are, are there those of us here who came, who came thirsty? We, we just didn't really know it or didn't acknowledge it when we came in. I mean, we came to hear the choir. We came to hear the bells. We came to hear prayers. We came to do the Sunday thing. We came to hear the preacher. If you came thirsty, are you going to drink from the water he has to offer? For some of you, it may be forgiveness. It may be um, taking you out of that shame and guilt you may have been experiencing. For some of you, it may be healing. For some of you, it may be a direction that you've been searching for and hadn't been able to see clearly. But, but now you've heard, just put your hand in my hand and trust me. I don't know how thirsty you were 
when you came in. But I hope you go out knowing Jesus quenches thirst. Fill my cup, Lord. I lift it up, Lord. Come and quench this thirsting of my soul. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Fill my cup. Fill it up and make me whole. Amen.